When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Four years on from joining Manchester United for a world record fee for a defender, Harry Maguire looks set to leave Old Trafford. After being stripped of his captaincy, he's set to join West Ham on a £30 million deal. So what went wrong at United? And is this move motivated to keep his place in the England squad? I'm Ayo Akimoleri. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Right, along for the ride from The Athletic, I have Adam Crafton as well as our Manchester football writer, Mark Critchley. As we get into things, Harry Maguire, after Manchester United reached an agreement with West Ham over a £30 million deal. So let's look into this. Four years on from being the most expensive defender in world football, United fought off interest from Pep Guardiola at City. Adam, how, how did we get to where we are right now? Um Quite a, quite a long story. I think he st- he still is the most expensive defender, isn't he? I mean, you had Guard- yeah, yeah, officially Guardiola last week. It, de- it depends on um on your currency conversions and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I, I deep dive on this last week, but whatever. Yeah, let's just say he is. Come on, give him something. We, we, let's start positive, right? He's the most expensive <laughs> defender in the world. Um, yeah, it depends if you're going on. I don't know Google Currency Exchange or Post Office <laughs> or, or whatever. Um, yeah, so. I think you probably have to divide Harry Maguire's time at Man United into two sections. I would say it's pre-Ronaldo and post-Ronaldo, to be honest, because I think until Ronaldo arrived in the summer of, what was it, 2021, I think Maguire's first couple of seasons, he was captain of the team. He wasn't sensational, but generally I think most Manchester United fans weren't looking at him and thinking he's a significant problem. I think people thought they just need a partner for him. And then when Rafael Varane was signed, that people looked at that and thought that could be a partnership for the next few years. And even if you look back to the 2021 Europa League final when Maguire wasn't fit enough to play, that was seen as a real crisis. You know, this guy who had been really good in the second half of that season uh, wasn't fit to play that game. United then didn't win that game. So his stock was pretty high. And then I think the end of Solskjaer's reign, which obviously coincided with Ronaldo's arrival, I think that saw a kind of gradual erosion of his authority and credibility and I'm not saying that's Cristiano Ronaldo's fault or anything like that I think it created an imbalance in the in the changing room his form suffered his confidence suffered and really sort of the last two years or so it's it's been quite uncomfortable to watch and he also had that you know that summer episode in in Mykonos where you know he nearly ended up in a in a Greek jail so it's it's been a couple of years for him yeah, it's it's interesting. Me and Mark were just talking before the pod about <laughs> how far and wide the Harry Maguire story went. I mean, Ghanaian politicians were quoting Harry Maguire in in their speeches and it's sometimes hard. I think as football fans in general, to, to forget there's a human being behind this, Mark, um, you clearly saw this was a player that was caught in the weight of a lot of this criticism. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's natural that Anybody who's been subjected to the kind of stuff like that that Maguire has over the last couple of years would be affected by it. I remember 
in a, in a former life, I used to cover England quite a bit as well. Uh, and there's a, you get obviously dealing with United have come up close to Maguire as well in mix and things like that. But you, you do get a bit more access towards uh, the players with England and sitting down with him uh, as we did fairly regularly this conversation would always come up and he would, if you asked Maguire about it, he would always say, well, you know, it's, I don't read the newspapers. I don't look at social media. I just try and keep it to myself, but, uh, and, and, and keep focused on, on football. But I mean, whenever, whenever any player says that you don't quite believe it. And I think with Harry, the magnitude of what the social media, uh, yeah, abuse, some of it abuse. Rich, like, we did a piece recently kind of looking at what had happened. And one of the things I put in that was, during the 21-22 season, there was an institute that did this big survey um, in conjunction with Ofcom, which is like yeah. uh, the UK's kind of communications regulator. And it, it looked into data on the most abused footballers in the Premier League on social media. And this was the first half of that season where Solskjaer lost his job. So it was that year where Man United are losing 5 at home to Liverpool and and, and all manner of, of embarrassing defeats. And Maguire, I think, in the first half of that season received almost 9,000 abusive tweets. That was second only to Ronaldo. Eight of the 10 most abused players in the Premier League during that period were playing for Manchester United. And I think, you know, I've kind of said this before, but the, the scrutiny and spotlight that you get, particularly in recent years, where I think British television football coverage is so centred on former Manchester United players, whether that's Gary Neville, Roy Keane, Paul Scholes, Rio Ferdinand. And that's not a criticism of them. It just means people are always scrutinising Man United in a really, really hot way, you know, to use the kind of way that Europeans use the word hot. Um, and I think that spotlight burns really brightly on on some players. And whatever you do, it, you know, after a game, if he came out, he didn't, you know, he either didn't apologise or he didn't apologise well enough or he was apologising too much. And... I think it did get to the point where he couldn't really do right for wrong. Isn't this also indicative of what feels like the horror show that has been happening at Manchester United over the last few years? Uh, obviously, shaking off the, the ghost of Alex Ferguson. And then you have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who some might say is the, the greatest caretaker ever in, in, in many respects. Uh, David Moyes' tenure, Jose Mourinho, Radnick, let's not forget that period. I mean, that sense of instability, not just for Harry Maguire, but for a team in general, you're not going to be getting the best out of your players at that point. I mean, let's try and come up with people who have really succeeded since signing for Manchester United in the past decade. Bruno Fernandes? Yeah. I mean, some tumbleweed. This is like a real tumbleweed <laughs> moment. Luke Shaw, Luke Shaw, Luke Shaw, Luke Shaw, we could say. David De Gea in different, in different strokes, That's true. I guess. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you take Eric Ten Hag's reign out of it, because I think some of those, you know, clearly Casemiro, Lissandro Martinez. But I think before mm. then, it was a really difficult place to go in and be successful. And we've seen far more, you know, far bigger names than Maguire, you know, like Pogba and Ronaldo and uh, uh, Di Maria and Sanchez and Falcao. We, you know, you can go on and on. So I have some sympathy for it. And also you have to remember, like, when he came in, he was given the captain's armband straight away. Like literally straight away, which on the one hand was a compliment to clearly the way that he was seen as a centre back and a leader, but I think it also spoke for an absence of leadership and communication and and real structure in the Man United dressing room at that time. And actually, whenever I've heard Maguire communicate, he doesn't really strike me as the most authoritative character. To be honest, I think he he's quite vocal on the pitch. 
at times, but he doesn't strike me as a really natural leader. He strikes me as like, you know, a solid lad. Just on that, yeah, like um, obviously I was covering him during the behind closed doors season when you don't have the fans in so you can hear the players a lot more, you get a better sense of the dynamics out on the pitch. And that was one thing that struck me as well. You know, I don't want to be too critical really because you're right. Maguire was very, very vocal. You'd hear him all game. Um, I heard his voice more than anyone else's that season, I think. But in terms of that natural authority, it's just my perception of it, but it was perception of most of the people who sat in the press box that season as well. It didn't really carry. You felt like he was almost stepping into the role of being captain rather than actually being a natural fit for that captaincy. And we did the piece recently about Bruno, um, who's obviously now replaced him. I thought it was really interesting because I remember at the time, I think I was sat in the press conference, they handed out the piece of paper saying Maguire had been named the captain. It was actually two weeks later, just a fortnight later that Bruno joined the club. And, Look, like you obviously weren't going to give him the armband straight away as soon as he walks in through the door at United. But at the same time, you do wonder, like, if that captaincy situation, which had kind of been unsettled for a few months, if it had just gone on a little bit longer, if Solskjaer or whoever, Solskjaer ultimately would have been making the decision, if they'd just seen the personalities in that dressing room, maybe lasted a bit longer, maybe just given it to Bruno instead, would we be talking about a very different Manchester United career that Harry Maguire would have had? I think that's a possibility. Well, I tell you what, it's probably a really good time to think about what his Manchester United legacy has been. Well, we've been talking to Karl Anker and he has a few words to say. I think even if you are the biggest Harry Maguire fan, it is hard to say he will be remembered fondly by the Old Trafford fan base. Which is a shame, because Harry Maguire's first two seasons were quite good, actually. He played 71 games uninterrupted for Manchester United across those first two seasons. And he was a very dependent club servant. He was given the club captaincy in January 2020. And while some people thought that was a bit early from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to give him the armband, he was a good captain at that point in time. And then he was among a number of England players at, in the 2021-2022 season who you can call it a tournament hangover, but just didn't look right. Did not look right at the start of 21-22. Maguire didn't look like a captain anymore. And the problem was... Manchester United weren't playing very well and were having a lot of embarrassing defeats, which meant Maguire had to do a lot of press conferences. Well, the real thing I've got to say is, is yeah, we apologise to the fans. It's nowhere near good enough. Um, they stuck right with us, even coming off the pitch at, at 5-0 in the end. They're, they're singing and, and we appreciate that. But for us um, as a club, we've got to do better. Things went from bad to worse the season afterwards when Eric Ten Hag came in and said, you are no longer going to be playing in your favourite position on the left side of defence. Harry Maguire's played his entire career at left centre-back for Leicester City, for England and for Manchester United up until last season. And then Eric Ten Hag went, you are now going to play on the right because on the left, I've got a lovely, lovely, lovely short king called Sandro Martinez. Last season, you saw Harry Maguire uncomfortable playing on the right side of defence and just in low confidence. And he became a, quite frankly, liability for those around him. In terms of what Manchester United fans thought of Harry Maguire, he unfortunately reached what you can call the, the meme vortex of defending. There's a very, very good quote from the late Johan Cruyff where he talked about space and back gardens and rooms. And he said, uh, when you're in a defensive role, it's very often about the area of space you are most comfortable defending. And he said, if you ask me to manage a very, very small area of space, I'll be fine because I'm not the quickest. Whereas if you ask me to manage a large area of space, I'll be in difficulty. If you gave Harry Maguire not too much space to manage, he's a good centre-back. He's best suited to be playing in a mid-block or a deep block, be it for England or be it for 
what might be a suture club, West Ham. The fact problem was Manchester United wanted to play with a high line because Manchester United are a team that wants to win the Champions League. So it's quite advantageous to, to push all your players higher up the field and put pressure on the opponent. Maguire wasn't suited to that and he looked clumsy. And once you start looking clumsy, you start making mistakes. And once you start making mistakes in the internet age of TikTok and social media, those mistakes get clipped up, they get added to you know, silly music and Maguire got turned into a meme. So farewell, Harold Maguire. Your first name is actually Jacob, and you're fantastic at attacking set pieces. Kind of. You probably should have scored a lot more corners. But other than that, uh, I wish you all the best. I think you're going to be very, very good for West Ham. Farewell. Carl Anker there on Harry Maguire's Manchester United career. It's also now over on, on The Athletic as well. I mean, look... There's also another article, actually, whilst Carl was talking, that it just drew my mind to, that was in The Athletic in, in February 2022 by Maram Albahana, talking about Manchester United and Harry Maguire, and perhaps Manchester United asking Harry Maguire to do something he's not. Carl mentioned about the small spaces and then obviously the high pressing that Manchester United want, obviously, because they want to be you know, a Champions League team, and these are not playing to Harry Maguire's strengths. You've also got on top of that this £80 million tag, which brings a lot of scrutiny anyway. Is there an air there then that you've got a player here that's completely out of sync with the team he's been told to play with and completely exposed and open to public scrutiny for that reason, Adam? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you have to think back to the summer where he was signing, where he signed for Man United. Man City were pushing really hard to sign him and Pep Guardiola wanted him. And if, he, if he'd have signed... For Manchester City, then it had been exposed probably even more in terms of big spaces um, than he has subsequently been for Man United. Now, we'll never really know how that would have worked out. But given most players tend to do all right under, under Guardiola, that you would think that clearly that there was enough seen, even though he doesn't have that really lightning pace to cope with that. So I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think Harry Maguire would have thought that he was someone who was incapable of playing in a modern progressive team. But clearly, that's the conclusion that, that Eric Ten Hag has come to. I think um, I remember towards the end of that 18-19 season, just before he moved to United, if you remember that Vincent Company game where he scored scored the goal against Leicester, won the league, obviously Maguire was playing in that game. And um, I was there that night. There was one moment like when it's still nil-nil, where City had an attack on the edge of the box. Maguire broke it up beat one of the City players, took it all the way up left wing, beat somebody else, then played it inside for James Madison, who had a shot, went just wide. You know, we're talking inches, and that's 1-0 Leicester, and maybe a very different title race. But it was, the, it was Maguire's run where he takes the ball from the edge of his box all the way into the other half, down the wing. And it's just like, like you could see at that point, okay, well, this is why, at the point at that moment in time, he's rated as one of the, like, the centre-back most people wanted to buy in the Premier League, I would say. Um, he was... A, a guy that p- could fit into a Pep Guardiola team. You could see it. It was right there. And that's the type of player that we've not seen from Maguire for, for years now. We're talking about a player now whose confidence in an ability and therefore his ability to be able to do those more expansive things on a football pitch have really been affected and almost shattered, really. And that's, that's the difference that we see. Then I go back to my point again about the instability at Manchester United. From a player development perspective, it's fair to say there's been this black hole where a potentially fantastic defender just hasn't developed because he hasn't had the right guidance. Yeah. And you have to remember the the period where it all kind of fell apart for him at Man United 
was such a, it was actually a really small period of time. It became longer because of kind of last season, but it was this kind of horrendous five weeks in kind of October, November, 2021. United lose 4-2 against Leicester, 5-0 against Liverpool, 2-0 against Man City, lose 4-1 at Watford. Maguire gets sent off in that game. All of a sudden, they've conceded 15 goals in four Premier League games. The manager's been sacked. Ronaldo's return's going wrong. And it was as if in that month, that was as though there was no way back for Maguire after that. To, I think to a lot of United fans, it made it really difficult for him. I mean, I think it was only a fortnight or so after that red card against Watford that he scored a goal for England in one of the qualifying games against a team. I can't remember who it was against. Um, Albania, I think. Albania. It was one of those England games where, like, you know, they're going to win sort of three, four nil in qualifying. <laughs> he scores a goal. The goal doesn't really matter because they're going to win three or four nil. And he's there, like, putting his hands over his ears. Uh, so, what Mark was saying about, you know, I don't take notice of whatever's being said in papers on TV. And straight after it, Roy Keane's on punditry just kills him. That's embarrassing. He's, he's been a disgrace last few months to Man United. He thinks he scores and he's going to shut his critics up. Embarrassing. But I think it spoke for what Maguire was experiencing at that time and how difficult things had become for him. And the, the Ronaldo stuff, it's quite intangible because you're talking about culture and atmosphere. So it's one of those things that I think is very difficult to prove, right, evidentially. I mean, the one thing we know is that when Ralph Rangnick was the caretaker manager, there was a point at which a group of senior players went in to see Rangnick. Ronaldo was among the players who basically said, I, I think we should set up for like the next game with Maguire on the bench. You know, for the highest earner to go in and basically say, I think the captain shouldn't be in the starting lineup is clearly a significant threat to his authority and standing in the dressing room. I mean, I know sort of Maguire's camp have pushed back on that over the years, but clearly they wouldn't have been in that meeting because Maguire himself wasn't there. I guess we're talking about the big change at Manchester United. What feels like that the ship has been somewhat settled with Eric Ten Hag. He brings in Martinez, the small king, as Carl calls him. Is there an idea that he probably hadn't wasn't sure about Maguire coming into Manchester United? And obviously what we've seen now is maybe he's his deepest thoughts proven right. Look, when he walked in, I think he was keen to give everybody as clean a slate as possible, Maguire included, Ronaldo included, uh, up to a point. But then there was all the <laughs> stuff that happened over the summer with Ronaldo. But yeah, you saw Maguire start those first two games. And alongside Martinez, but those two games went absolutely horrifically. Uh, and from that point onwards, I just don't think that it was the direction that United were moving in. I mean, we're saying about the captaincy here. It's a huge call to drop a captain uh, and to, to basically hold that line throughout a whole season. And I think as we've done reporting on it before, that did sometimes cause issues around Level, Maguire's level of authority um, reporting recently about uh, the decision to make Bruno the new captain we were saying within that article that um, there was there was occasions where players would maybe feel a little bit like they couldn't really speak uh, do speeches with before like, at half time or before games because they would be somehow impinging on Maguire's authority a little bit reserved in that case you know even when it came to organizing like nights out they didn't feel like they could do that and go above Maguire so it was always going to be an untenable situation really and it was always going to add it look nobody was surprised a few weeks ago when the announcement came that that United had a new captain but I think what is slightly more surprising is is what we've seen over pre-season recently where Maguire hasn't even been wearing the armband 
in friendlies that are mostly filled with the second string and, and younger players. Um, it's gone to Scott McTominay or Tom Heaton or someone like that. And I think that's a sign that really we've been, not only was, you know, the captaincy, everybody knew that he wouldn't be captain this season, but that we were getting to this point where eventually he was going to have to depart because the situation has just really become untenable. He's not, he's, he's a player on a huge long-term contract. Well, two years on a contract, but a big contract. He's um, obviously still arguably the most expensive defender in the world, but he isn't starting games and he needs to be. And um, yeah, it was always going to end up at this point, I think. Hey, listener, there's a brand new Totally Football show out right now, ready to get you up to speed on the brand new Premier League season. It's got the predictions bit in there. We've got all the big pre-kickoff news from this busiest of weeks, plus some fiendish quiz questions and all the 80s bands in car dealerships chat that you would expect. Duncan Alexander's on board, so is Tim Spears and Adrian Clark too. So why not join us yourself on the Totally Football Show season preview out now. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolera. Okay, well, let's talk about the move. Um, is this a move that benefits both parties? He's off to meet David Moyes again. I mean, some might say uh, West Ham are European champions. Won a European Cup last season. Less pressure at West Ham and with a manager that let's face it, isn't a bad manager. I think for him, it's probably as good as it's going to get. I mean, I did I did half wonder if uh, maybe a Chelsea or a Tottenham might come in for him just because, you know, they're 
clearly, you know, that well, Chelsea just sort of buy anyone, but also <laughs> Tottenham clearly have also been looking for left sided centre backs this summer. But I think both managers want someone with a bit more pace. And I think that's probably what would keep him out of those top clubs perhaps in England and then maybe you start looking abroad. So I think in England, Europa League football, in a system I think that will probably make him look really good, um, where he'll be comfortable, uh, where he goes in with you know good authority, good reputation. I think your England chances are also helped when you play for West Ham. I've worked for kind of enough people in the in the British media who support West Ham that if you have a if you have a good run of games for West Ham, then it, it really does help you <laughs> kind of like your national the way like the the national media see you. It's um I think that could be a really positive thing for him ahead of the European Championships next summer. And I think clearly Gareth Southgate might have had a conversation with him to say, look, you know, Man United are in the Champions League this season rather than the Europa League. So those games that you were getting against various teams in the Europa League, you're probably not going to be getting them because Man United are going to be playing in the Champions League, which means Varane and Martinez are going to play those games or Lindelof or Shaw. So where are you going to get your football? Yeah, Mark, he's like the biggest starters, played more games than any other England player bar Harry Kane. Um, form for country and club are clearly very different. But if you're thinking about the Euros, Harry Maguire needs regular football. Absolutely, I think, um, and I'm sure, as Adam said, Gareth Southgate would have been making that point to him. Um, again, it's one of those things, whenever you were covering England, that would come up every single international break would be, yeah, but Harry's not, last season at least, well, Harry's not playing, Harry's not playing, uh, going into the World Cup. Um, and they need him because, to be honest, centre-back isn't really an, an area that's of great strength and depth for England. Um, there's, they've options there, but there's issues with quite a lot of them, if you think. Tyrone Mings, um, never really quite convinced. Ben White's playing right back now and was withdrawn from the World Cup squad. Southgate's never really been convinced about Tamori. Eric Dyer might not be playing for Tottenham. And I think uh, Connor Cody's in the championship now, isn't he? So, oh, Colwell's the interesting one, isn't he? There's, there's Colwell coming through and then they've always been a big fan of Mark Gay as well. And I'd imagine, look, if you were going to pick four, you'd pick Stones, Gay, Colwell, and then maybe Harry Maguire. But um, I think that was kind of contingent. On him, certainly him starting, I think, was was really contingent on him being able to play regularly this season. I don't think it's controversial to say that he's probably still England's second best centre-back, regardless of playing time, uh, in terms of his, his level of experience, what he's achieved, um, his pedigree within the game still. Whether Southgate will see that, whether that will still be the case once we see more of him on the pitch for West Ham, uh, should the move go through, then you know we'll see. But I think still... Harry Maguire is a better player than he has been made out to be, certainly over the past year. Everything that we said in the first part of the podcast about how important he was to United. When Adam mentioned that little six-game spell where everything fell apart, I remembered the first of those games, that defeat at Leicester, he was actually rushed back from injury for that because he was just seemed so vital. So if Maguire can get back to a point where he's considered that type of player again at that level, then he's going to be an asset for West Ham if they buy him and for England too. Let's remember the magic of Harry Maguire because uh, athletics tactics writer Liam Tharm is here with a lowdown on what makes Harry Maguire so important to Gareth Southgate's England. 
Harry Maguire has been quite significant for England at the past few major international tournaments. We can go back to World Cup 2018, where Everton played in the back three in an all Yorkshire back three uh, with John Stones and with Carl Walker. Um, and in Euro 2020, of course, England had a significantly better defence than most teams, particularly going through the knockout stages. They didn't concede uh, an open play goal the entire tournament, obviously only conceding from a direct free kick in the semi-finals, uh, and Italy scored their equaliser from a corner in the final. Maguire is someone who I think many find a bit awkward to watch because he's a right footer playing off the left, whereas most modern managers now, including Eric Ten Hag at Manchester United, want a left-footed centre-back to play on that side. They then just naturally tend to open up more towards the wing and it helps in terms of sort of passing angles in terms of short passes and playing through the lines, which, if we're honest, isn't really Maguire's game. He likes to play big, booming diagonals, often towards the right-hand side, which has worked for England because you've often got, at least now, Bakaya Saka out wide on the right. And of course, as a defensive style, Maguire's aggressive, he likes to step out, that does vacate space in behind, which in a back four can be slightly more problematic because there's less cover. In a back three, it can be a bit easier. And it's worked with John Stones, who tends to be someone that can be a bit more patient um, along the back line. One of his best parts of his game is his aerial ability. We see it at attacking set pieces where, you know, he's been quite... Uh, I think harshly sort of nicknamed Slaphead that he's seen as a very unattractive, big, stocky player. Um, but if you compare some of his statistics, you look at his numbers compared to some of the younger uh, continental European um, young centre-backs that tend to be more fashionable and stylish, that people perceive that. Um, Maguire is among them, if not better than many of them. And it's a real harsh perception bias that he, I think, um, suffers from that, of course, he can do nothing about. But there's a reason why Southgate stuck with him the entire time. He, you know, he's a massive threat in both boxes. He's a really, really good switcher of play. He's a really, really good dribbler, particularly when coming out from the back. And that just opens up options when you can dribble past sort of the first line of pressure. So those first couple of strikers or those first couple of pressing players, it maximizes your options a lot more. It allows your midfielders to push on, allows you to play expansively. And that's really been crucial for England's style of play because they wanted to be such a possession-based team evolving away from a style they didn't play before. Maguire really suits that. Um, and because of the way England play, and often because it's tournament-related football, you can get away with defending a bit deeper there with not always beating teams four or five new in tournaments. But at club level, particularly a side as big as Manchester United, want to win and they want to win in style, which often means they also press higher and that can start to expose some of the flaws in Maguire's game, particularly his athleticism or his mobility and the issues he has sort of defending the space in behind when teams do go um, above and in behind. But that's been less of an issue with England because you've got a really good sweeper keeper in Jordan Pickford, because there's people like Carl Walker and John Stones around them to recover the pace, and because I think they just tend to press higher at the pitch less often. It's really interesting Liam breaks that down because tournament football, obviously Premier League football, very, very different things, but... There is still a really solid defender in the midst of all of this, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I was like listening to all that. I was like, well, this sounds like a complete player almost. <laughs> a modern <laughs> defender. What's going well, on? Well, we, yeah, no, no. And that's, yeah, I, I think, look, I, there's, like you say, there's different uh, demands at, at, in international football, tournament football. I think um, they are slightly more suited to, to Maguire's game, but... The, the point that he made there about how he's, he was playing alongside John Stones and Kyle Walker again we come back to that the Manchester City thing like uh, if, if things go slightly differently then you perhaps end up with a very different uh, career for Harry Maguire and a, a whole different trajectory this 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 clearly everything that Liam's outlined there is kind of like a technical profile that it, you actually that's that's almost the reality if you like if you sit and you watch Maguire and you you block out all the social media stuff all the meme ability whatever that's the player that he is and it's the player that he can be again. And, you know, he, he, he's shown that before and he'll he shown that in the past and there's no reason why he couldn't um, reach those levels again. It is, is a big one though. And as we're talking about Maguire in England and also Maguire playing for Manchester United, 
which holds the biggest pressure? My take would be that United is the bigger one. I don't know what you think, Adam, but like United is a 24-7 worldwide beast that just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. The attention, the cycles, the social media, all of it just keeps going and going and going. And I know, uh, particularly within the media, and I think it's more of a kind of a traditional media mindset that England is, you know, there's so much pressure on England. But let's face it, like people really only really care about England that in, in terms of a national kind of fervor around England once every two years, um, international breaks, whatever, you can get through those. England, the pressure comes once every two years. United, it's 24-7. And so that was the spotlight that he was thrown under. That's the one that he had to survive. In, and, and that's the one that, yeah, I, I, I agree. Oh, for a very short period at the beginning of last, sorry, the season before last, things just fell apart very quickly. I think Adam summed that up perfectly before. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with you. I think what I would say is just England maybe used to be that. You know, if you go back to, for certain players, you know, you think of Beckham and Rooney and uh, even like Gerard Lampard for a little bit as well, just in terms of the relentless scrutiny on them. But I think what England have done far better than Man United over the past few years is create a culture that somehow lifts that pressure even though that pressure still exists, to make everything feel a bit lighter. And yes, that comes with a little bit, you know, relative success, semi-finals, finals, um, a major tournament. But I think that's pro- that's been Gareth Southgate's biggest achievement, you know, and it, it was also the thing that I think for all, maybe the first, you know, 18 months or so that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was quite good at, at Man United, just sort of lifting a bit of pressure off players. And in the end, it just sort of became overwhelming. Whereas I don't think Ten Hag, I think what Ten Hag's done is try and make everything far less about individuals. When I think about Man United now, I'm not really thinking about individuals as much. You're kind of thinking, what, what's, what's Ten Hag's Man United going to do? Rather than, what's Pogba going to do? What's Ronaldo going to do? What's De Gea going to do? And I think when Ten Hag walked into that dressing room last year, sort of picking up the wreckage from that year where Rangnick had kind of come in and, and things like that, you look through that team, it looks like De Gea, Maguire, obviously Pogba just left, Ronaldo, and there was all these kind of different splinters. And I think, I mean, De Gea, Maguire is the other quite interesting one. How different could Maguire's experience at Man United have been when we talk about those big spaces that Maguire had to think about? If you had a goalkeeper that was playing five, ten yards higher up the pitch, what would that that's what Pickford offers him as well. Yeah, what yeah. would that have done to to help? Maguire's deficiencies and did that cause tensions between Maguire and De Gea at certain times I think you could see that on the pitch sometimes obviously you saw it in Seville in the Europa League quarterfinal and again look I mean I would defend a lot of the, at the same time I would say you know De Gea masked shortcomings from other players in, in different ways so it's difficult but I think all of that has to be taken into consideration. Is this a uh... A new lease of life if this deal does go through. He's 30 years old, um, you know, still hopefully a fair bit of football left in his legs as a centre-back. Um, is this a space where we can see Harry Maguire find that confidence back again and hopefully try and rediscover some of the old magic? I would say yes, I am back in. I'm on board the Maguire love train as the, that was the England <laughs> corner routine, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think so. I think, no, honestly, because I think it's about environments and I think whatever, a lot's changed at United over the past year um, and completely for the better, I think. Um, but it still wasn't a place where I don't think Harry Maguire could play his best football and play it with the, with the sense of self 
confidence that he did beforehand. I just think he needed to get out. And I think there's still clearly a player in there who can do more than a good job. And like I said before, probably still England's second best centre-back, probably still one of the better ones in the Premier League. It's crazy to say, it's crazy to say, but nobody would actually willingly put forward this opinion now. It feels stupid to say it, but it's true. He's he's still got all those abilities, all those things that we associate with him in the past. So yeah, I'm backing it. Don't know about you though, Adam. I'm now just envisioning you as, do you remember that kind of iconic photograph of Maguire leaning against the board? Uh, yeah. Well, that's the one I was thinking about. I want that again. I want that guy again. Suave, <laughs> smooth. For people, for people who somehow haven't seen it, it was during the 2018 World Cup to one of the games and Maguire's kind of leaning against the sideboard and there's a row of about three or four pretty beautiful women all sort of lined up. I think one of them uh, became his wife. I mean, he didn't know her before yeah, yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> I'm now, the way that Mark's spoken about him, I'm picturing him sort of being superimposed on and he is one of those adoring fans. Uh, <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Swooning. Yeah, I, I, I don't care what, what Mark said. I, you know, he's going to an environment that should be a lot healthier for him. Only caution would be, you know, we're not quite sure what's going on with West Ham and David Moyes. What I just hope for Maguire's sake is that, you know, you don't get four weeks into the season and then the manager comes who wants to play a really high line. And and he's like, not again. It's happening again, triggering. Not again. So, yeah, fingers crossed that David Moyes and Harry Maguire survive and thrive. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and yeah, for sure. And, and get the swooning back for Harry Maguire. Thanks so much, Adam. Mark. Always a pleasure. Remember, you can read more about Harry Maguire, his proposed move to West Ham and the latest transfer stories on The Athletic. You can sign up today for just one ninety nine a month for an entire year at theathletic.com slash football pod. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great athletic football podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places and head to theathletic.com slash football pod for the very latest subscription offers. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.